Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Live link to the trumpet.com coming up on this Monday edition. A look at uh, quite a few headlines around the world happening in the news and a lot uh, to be discussed about uh, social media and uh, what's happening there with Facebook and some of those uh, other platforms. Uh, quite a few interesting stories to look at in relation to that and a few other stories as well. That and more coming up on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. We are online at kpcg.fm, and we have a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at kpcgfm. And any emails you'd like to send, send those along. Comments at kpcg.fm. Happy to see those uh, from listeners that send those in from around the globe. Quite a few listeners around the world and here in Edmond, Oklahoma City area as well. Today is Monday. Dwight Falk with you here today. Grant Turgeon should be back with us tomorrow. And uh, quite a few headlines to look at today, uh, including just the fact that it's, uh, I guess we're into springtime now, even though we had a cold weekend here locally. But uh, I did see somebody mowing their lawn this morning. So I guess that means that spring has officially come when uh, people have to begin to mow their lawns. But uh, so definitely getting uh, more into the springtime here in Oklahoma, hopefully uh, nice where you're listening. Uh, there's a lot happening in the news. Uh, one of the top stories uh, from today is what happened over the weekend there in uh, Syria, uh, or in Syria, rather. Uh, Trump threatens, this is from Yahoo, Trump threatens animal Assad, Putin, over alleged chemical attack in Syria. And uh, so this was uh, over the weekend. President Trump responded Sunday to reports of a suspected chemical attack in the Syrian city of Douma blaming Syrian President Bashar Assad and his international allies for the apparent attack that left dozens dead and hundreds injured. Maybe you've seen some of the footage. It's always horrific when that happens. Terrible situation. They say in some of his most critical comments directed at Russian President Vladimir Putin, to date, Mr. Trump threatened that there's a big price to pay for those backing the Assad regime. What exactly that means, uh, we will find out. Of course, President Trump was very critical of former President Obama. You remember he had a red line in Syria that if chemical weapons were used, that would be the red line, and he'd do something severe to stop the situation over there. And, of course, nothing was done. And uh, Vladimir Putin was allowed to go in and supposedly uh, get the chemical weapons out of there, and yet we see more chemical weapons attacks. Interesting to look at some of the numbers. There's been over 1,000 Syrians killed by chemical weapons since the Syrian war began. So those numbers are going to be a little bit uh, tough to pin down maybe, but the ones that I saw are just a little over a 1,000, and that's just those that are dead. Of course, many more have been injured. Horrible situation. Chlorine gas used in a lot of cases, sometimes something else. And uh, there was a report on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago about how the, uh, the hospitals are targeted 
for attacks. Uh, and then also the children are being targeted because it's the next generation of uh, people in, this, in uh, Syria. And so they're trying to knock out certain areas of that population, certain segments. And the hospitals are the most vulnerable areas. So really brutal. And so we'll see what happens if the U.S. does anything in this case. There's a lot of people involved in that Syrian conflict. Russia's in there. Of course, the United States somewhat in there. President Trump also said he wanted to bring the U.S. troops home from Syria. So we'll see what happens. But a, really a terrible situation over there. There's a lot of good write-ups at thetrumpet.com about uh, the history of that conflict. There's some good Trumpet dailies on that as well. Andrew Loker talked about that uh, topic recently on a Trumpet Daily from last week. So you can go back and listen to that as well. So a lot of good information about what's going on in Syria. Easy to forget about Syria, but they're going through a brutal, brutal battle. Uh, and and they're having, you know, chemical attacks and other things every day. So we're well, not every day, but I mean, you know, it comes up in the news. They're having attacks happen very frequently. And then it comes up that there are the, these chemical attacks. So their lives are really turned upside down over there. Don't forget about that region. There's a lot happening over there. <clears throat> There's uh, quite a few stories here today about some of the uh, technology issues going on in the United States. We are in what they call the uh, social media experiment, and uh, we're learning a lot more about that and what's uh, going on uh, with social media. We've been in social media for about a decade now, and we think to ourselves, well, okay, what does that mean? What, what happens when a society is so intertwined in social media? So we're learning a lot about that. And that's what authors are talking about in relation to social media. They say we're, we're about a decade into this experiment. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, he's has to face uh, uh, Congress, I guess, coming up here uh, soon about data breaches from Facebook. So when you share information online, you're sharing information online. And sometimes you, it's shared with people that we want to have it shared with. And other times it's being shared with people we wouldn't want it to be shared with. And some people are upset about that. Others don't seem to care. The New York Post has this write-up today. Why millennials will learn nothing from Facebook's privacy crisis. So this is an opinion piece, but I think some good uh, thoughts anyway. And the millennials are uh, the generation, I guess, that's really uh, probably using Facebook the most. And they say no company better exemplifies the Internet age dictum that if the product is free, you are the product, wrote British journalist John Lancaster last year. That's a, that's a really, I've never read that before, but that's a great point. I'll read that again. No company better exemplifies the Internet age dictum that if the product is free, you are the product. And they're talking about Facebook. Have you ever thought about that before? If you're doing something online and it's, free and you're really involved in it you're the product they're 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 monetizing you they've made you into a commodity and that's what facebook does and other companies as well zuckerberg it says realized early on that advertisers marketers political opposition researchers academics and data nerds of all stripes would kill to get their hands on your likes and dislikes so if you've spent any time on Facebook, you know that you like things and you dislike things. And people want to know what do you like and what do you dislike because they can sell that information. The write-up says if he was going to make any money, this is Zuckerberg, if he was going to make any money off his dorm room doodle, he was going to have to sell you out. There's money in it. 
but where's the money? The money is in selling your information, your likes, your dislikes, targeting you with advertisement. That's where the uh, money comes from. That's why Mark Zuckerberg is rich. It says, more than a decade into the social media experiment, we can no longer claim ignorance about Facebook's business model. And it's interesting to just stop there and think about that. I mean, these companies, they have a business model. That's why they are successful. I guess it's sort of a romanticized version to think of, of events, to think of, say, Mark Zuckerberg and his, uh, I guess he wears a T-shirt all the time, and uh, just kind of fooling around in his dorm room, and he comes up with this Facebook uh, that the college that he's at, they can share information, and then it becomes this big thing. And, 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 and there's some truth to that probably, but they do have a business model. They are working to make a lot of money, and, of course, they're making it off of the users. It says, still, this write-up says, still we go right on shoveling wheelbarrows of our most personal information into its insatiable maw. That's quite a graphic description there. Facebook having this insatiable maw that needs more and more information from you and me personally to stay alive. Facebook knows our politics, our tastes in food, our religious affiliations, our sexual orientations. It knows who our friends and enemies are. It has developed uh, taxonomies of our family relationships and work histories. It tracks us everywhere we go on the Internet. It can identify us by sight using digital face recognition technology to analyze our photos. We give them everything, and they give us what exactly? The huge mistake in this arrangement was probably ours. This author says, and this is, again, from the New York Post. It says, whether this brave new world keeps you up at night, it could depend on your age. Are you concerned about people having all your information? Some are concerned and some are not. They say recent reports have millennials leading the charge to delete Facebook and other social media. Don't buy it, the author says. If they're deleting it, it's because they're bored, not because they're repulsed by the Cambridge Analytica affair, or suddenly started caring about digital privacy. Uh, The author says, I've had millennials tell me when they don't uh, worry about Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, or Google, know about them. They don't worry about that because they've got nothing to hide. And anyway, the big tech companies are ambivalent about your personal uh, likes and dislikes, millennials say. They only keep such close tabs because they want to make it easier for you to find out what you're looking for online. So there might be some truth to that, but that seems like a bit of a naive take. Uh, The information is power, and the more information somebody has about an individual, the more power they can have over them. And the author says, if today's, and this is a quote, if today's social media has taught us anything about ourselves as a species, it is that the human impulse to share overwhelms the human impulse for privacy. And that's a quote from Wired Magazine founder Kevin Kelly in his uh, 2016 book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. And he said that humans want to share more than they want privacy. And that might depend, I suppose, on the person, but that's, that's what these tech companies are betting on, that you have this great desire to share and you want to share more than you have a concern that somebody might uh, do something uh, bad with your data. (laughs) This write-up says, this is undoubtedly true, but it marks a stark departure from the attitudes of previous American generations. 
the uh, greatest generation would surely have taken a pass on the telephone if the trade-off was that Ma Bell could eavesdrop on their calls and sell what it learned to Sears and Roebuck. Baby boomers and Gen Xers both understood that opening someone else's mail was a felonious act. Yeah, just stop and think about that for a second. We know, I think, to some extent, that when we put information into Facebook or anything else, uh, there are other people looking at what we put there. And they are gathering data on us and information and selling it for advertising and so forth. And they could use it for other things, I suppose. And people seem to be okay with that, I think, for the most part. But what if you you were making a phone call and you knew that there was some person sitting in another room that was going to sit there and listen to every phone call and take notes so that they knew how to try to sell you things and, and other such uh, uh, operations like that? And, and again, that I'm sure that happens on phone calls too. But it would just it just paints a different picture. I wouldn't want somebody sitting there or or maybe maybe to make it even more realistic, what if every private conversation you wanted to have, there had to be a third person there taking notes and they were going to use that information. I think most of us would opt out of that and say, I don't I don't want that person sitting there listening to what I have to say because they're not they're not involved in the conversation. Well, that's what that's what some of these technology companies are doing. They're taking all that information, and uh, how concerned are people about it? That's the question. This write-up from the New York Post says millennials have made peace with the idea that they won't have any privacy. No privacy at all. Can you imagine that? They say, in fact, they've learned to love the idea that nothing is off limits, everything is for public consumption, and everyone is always on display. <clears throat> That might seem good for a time, but uh, I think eventually people don't like that. The author says the millennial view of life is the kind is a kind of online competition to see who can curate the most glamorous and mysterious Instagram feed or tweet the most savagely clever political retort. So that's what uh, this author thinks anyway. It's an op-ed piece there from the New York Post, and um, they were looking at what's happening here with all the information being taken and used from Facebook and other places. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you, do you want your privacy do you, or do you want, do you care? Now, it's, we shouldn't, I suppose, have anything to hide, so to speak. But at the same time, uh, there's certain private elements of people's lives that are not public. And that I think that's proper in the way it should be. And uh, so it's interesting to think about. Uh, there's a lot of comments to the write-up where people are saying, hey, I just got off of social media and my life's better for it. So, again, I'm not saying a person should or shouldn't <laughs> use social media, but it's just the reality, just knowing that whatever we put out there, it is out there for people to look at and to use. Yeah, maybe it's just to target us with an ad. That might not be such a bad deal, but who knows what else could happen. You know, it's factoring into political campaigns, apparently. Uh, who knows what else? And there's plenty of stories of some really bad activity that can occur. We're not going to get into those, but it is interesting. But going back to that first uh, comment that the author made about how if uh, a product is free, you are the product, uh, how much money does Facebook make off of you? Here it is. Facebook's most valuable users are in the U.S. and Canada, generating $26.76 in average revenue per year. Or sorry, per user in the fourth quarter of 2017. So that was just in the fourth quarter of 2017. A little over $25 uh, per user. 
and uh, most of that coming from advertising. For all of 2017, the average user in the U.S. and Canada generated $84.41, and $81.92 of that came from advertising. So for now, it's mostly advertising. But uh, again, that information could be used for probably a lot of things. Uh, making the region Facebook's most valuable on a revenue basis, the U.S. and uh, Canada. So we're the commodity. <laughs> we are the uh, product. That's how they make their money. It's off of advertising to us. As of the fourth quarter, Facebook said it had 184 million monthly active users in the U.S. and Canada. That's a decline of about 1 million monthly active users from the previous quarter. Some people are getting out of it. But again, like the uh, author of this piece writes, it's not necessarily because they have a big privacy concern. It's maybe just because they're bored and they want to go to some new app or some new uh, social media platform. In total, Facebook has over 2 billion monthly active users. Man, you know, you start thinking about those numbers. I mean, what if you had a, a revenue stream where you made about $25 a person uh, per quarter for everybody that used your service? So you're looking at like, what, $100 a year. Uh those numbers start to add up quick. It's no wonder uh, Mr. Zuckerberg's a billionaire. That's quite the uh, income stream. So very interesting to see what happens. Uh, they're going to, of course, have this. Uh, he's going to have to testify, I guess, about what they do with people's data. So that should be uh, quite interesting. And as the author points out, they said, well, uh, he likes to use other people's data, their private data. How is he going to feel when his private data is on display? So that's that's always what's interesting about it when you start looking at privacy concerns is usually the people that are running the companies that ha are taking people's information, they don't want their information out there publicly. So why don't they want their information out there publicly? Because it's dangerous, especially somebody that, you know, say is uh, wealthy and so forth. There was a story a while ago about how uh, people in particular that are wealthy, they have to be very careful with what they post online because people can know where they are. And then sometimes, uh, you know, target them in certain ways. <clears throat> so I guess if you're a small fish, as they say, maybe the information is not that relevant, but it could become relevant. So it's always a, a question. How much uh, privacy do you want? And how willing are you to share your information? This is related to that. It's from AFP. And a little bit unnerving because it involves children. It says uh, consumer groups seek probe of YouTube over ads for kids. So it's all about targeting ads these days. It says consumer and activist groups called Monday for an investigation into Google-owned YouTube for allowing advertising to be targeted at children, which would be an apparent violation of U.S. law. The organization said that although YouTube claims that the site is only for users 13 and up, uh, Google generates significant profits from kid-targeted advertising on the video-sharing service. So you know kids, of course, are on YouTube. Everybody's on YouTube. 23 organizations signed a complaint to the Federal Trade Commission, arguing that YouTube is among the most popular online platforms for children and offers many programs designed and promoted for children. So I, I guess maybe they would, YouTube would probably argue that, well, the parents would be there to monitor it, but uh, that probably doesn't happen as much as it should. According to this complaint, Google collects personal information about minors on YouTube. That's where it gets dangerous, including location, unique device identifiers, and mobile telephone numbers, and uses that to target advertisements to kids across the Internet, apparently without their parents' consent. So that's the thing we have to think about, say, 
in terms of what's the danger of going online? Well, people know where you're going online from. They know the device. They know where you're located physically. And when children are involved, that can be a very, very dangerous thing. Children get targeted uh, for many uh, terrible reasons. And uh, so if people have information about where the kids are, what the phone numbers they're using, what devices they're using. Yeah, maybe they just get an ad for, you know, kids cereal or something like that, or maybe it becomes more serious. In any event, the more and more they start looking at some of these social media platforms, the kids are there, uh, probably the biggest users in some cases, and they're being targeted in ways that uh, may be unethical, even just in terms of advertising, but then there's bigger dangers beyond that. So something to consider because we're all, who doesn't have a computer these days? Who doesn't have a smartphone? Who doesn't go online? <laughs> that would be the rare, rare person. So we, we just have to, I think, be realistic about some of the dangers that are out there, especially if you're a parent and you have uh, children that like to go on the Internet and so forth. And a lot of times they have to, even for, like, say, schoolwork and things. But uh, monitoring it is very, very important. There's a show that's uh, coming up that uh, I, I don't know that it'd be any good. <laughs> a lot of times their shows currently aren't very good, but there's it's an interesting premise, and it kind of relates to this technology as well. And uh, it says, high school now, it's a whole other level. Seven adults who posed as teenagers for a semester were shocked by how much things have changed. So every once in a while, a year, even years ago, they had these shows where they'd have older uh, people try to infiltrate a school and act like they were students. And uh, so you got to look young <laughs> to try to pull it off. And uh, sometimes those shows were fairly unbelievable. But in this case, they tried to do it as a reality show. And I don't know exactly how they would pull that off because if you're following people around with cameras, it seems like everyone would know. But in any in any event, they, they did this in some, some way. I think it's an A&E show. And, but I think it's interesting just looking at how things are changing for the young people. It says, if you could relive your high school experience for a day, would you jump at the chance? I think most people would jump the other way and not want to do that, but maybe maybe some people would. They say, how about a whole semester? That was the premise of Undercover High. It's an A&E documentary series that followed seven adults as they posed as students at Highland Park High School in Topeka, Kansas. It's just down the road from us here for the uh, spring 2017 semester. The adults, aged 21 through 26, took classes, joined clubs, and navigated social life alongside real high school students to get a glimpse into what life is like for the average teenager today. So these people doing this, they're not, they haven't been out of high school that long. I mean, if they're 21 through 26, they've been out you know, between three and, you know, uh, what would that be, eight years or so. So that's not that, that long ago. If you're older and it's been 10, 20, 30 plus, you can imagine how we'd be stunned to go back to high school today. It says the unique experiment finished uh, airing two weeks ago and made clear that high school today is nothing like what the undercover students remembered. So again, they're only, they were in high school just a few years ago, but it's changed. They say high school was already hard. But high school now is a whole other level, said Gloria, a 26-year-old undercover student who teaches kindergarten. She said for one thing, uh, or they said for one thing, technology has transformed the way teenagers go about their lives. Uh, many of us did not have 
the internet and smartphones and, and all of those distractions when we were high school kids and teenagers, but they have them now. The undercover students found that smartphone use was rampant at Highland Park, and teachers were constantly fighting for students' attention during class hours. And that's something I'm not really that familiar with, the policies. I would assume, I would assume that you're not allowed to have a smartphone in a class, but I don't know that. I don't know what the policies are. Maybe it depends on the class and on the school. And even in that, even if they were, say, banned or something, um, a lot of times kids don't follow that, you know. It's always been hard to keep kids' attention in class, even even pre-smartphones. But I can't even imagine with a smartphone how hard that would be to uh, keep a, a child's attention when there's all these other distractions and your buddy's texting you from across the room and, and who knows what else is going on. They say for one, uh, the technology has changed things quite a bit. They say the undercover students found that uh, the smartphone use was rampant, so they had difficulty getting the attention of the students. And they said on top of that, social media led to numerous instances of cyberbullying, sexual harassment. Several students told the cameras that social media had uh, contributed to their depression. There's a lot of reports that uh, back that up. It says the kinds of challenges, this is one of the, the people that was involved there, Shane Feldman, he was an undercover student. He said the kinds of challenges that I experienced in high school, along with my peers, are now 24-7 issues because of technology, computers, cell phones, and social media. He graduated in 2012. Uh, he said there's no real escape. And so that's a point that uh, I think a lot of people have thought about is that Things that used to stay at school, now they don't stay at school. I mean, if you had a kid that kind of gave you a hard time, you could probably get away from them and go home. Get away for the summer maybe or, or something or the weekend. But now it's a 24-7 situation because of the Internet and because of the cyberbullying that goes on. And even if, let's say, a student's not being – the student that's being bullied, even if they're not online, everybody else is. So you go to school and everybody's in on the joke. Everybody's in on the, you know, the negative uh, comments or whatever if that's going on. And so I can only imagine how bad it would be. Human nature hasn't changed. I mean, it is it is what it is, and the Bible talks about how, how bad it is because of Satan's influence. But now the ability to spread information has just exploded to where, you know, gossip would run through a school, but now it can run through it instantaneously and continue 24-7. So even kids that are young people that graduated just a few years ago are shocked by the changes now. And it is it is good to stop and kind of think about just how far the technology has come because, you know, we all have the smartphones today, but it wasn't too long ago there weren't smartphones. You had a cell phone, which was, you know, powerful enough, but not the smartphone capabilities. But now everybody has that. So it really is becoming quite... Uh, um, uh, quite an, an avenue for potential trouble. Lots of good could be done with the technology, but unfortunately lots of bad can be as well. And I've mentioned it before, but when I uh, see some of the kids come and go from my neighborhood and they get on the buses and so forth, uh, they, when they're getting on the bus, they've got a smartphone in their hand and they're looking at it. And when they get off the bus, they have a smartphone in their hand and they're looking at it. So, you know, that's, I don't think they're checking the stock quotes, <laughs> the stock market from the day. You know, they're, they're, chatting with their friends or they're looking at whatever they're looking at and uh it's it's a 24 7 situation so it's a different life than what a lot of us experienced and uh, i don't think it's better so anyway interesting show i haven't seen it i wouldn't recommend it obviously because 
a lot of times those are not great programs, but it's an interesting premise anyway. Undercover high, they go in to see what high school life is like today, and it's much more difficult in uh, some ways when it comes to the uh, the technology anyway. We've mentioned uh, recently about some of the homeless problems that are hitting, especially the West Coast, California. California is kind of having their own sort of civil uprising between different different counties and different areas because of the homeless issues. Well, it's making its way up and down the coast. Of course, Seattle has a lot of homeless. Uh, if you've been to Seattle, you know that. You've seen them around. Uh, they're a, really a feature downtown, almost like a, I hate to say a tourist attraction, but I mean, you have your tourist attractions, and then you have the homeless, and they're kind of one and the same. They're, they're both there in the same spots, which I uh, just was there recently and saw that. It's it's uh, uncomfortable, but uh, they're they're very bold there in downtown Seattle. This is from Fox News. Homeless residents brag about makeshift mansion, quote unquote. They have a different definition of mansion than I do, but near Seattle's famed Space Needle. So if you go to Seattle, one of the things you probably want to see is the Space Needle because it's a, one of the probably the most famous attraction. And so whenever you see those famous attractions, you see the homeless there. Residents, it says, of the mega tent mansion, quote-unquote, homeless encampment near Seattle's famed Space Needle, are bragging about the practicality of their new digs, taunting local politicians. They say, if you can live on the street and not pay rent, then why would you pay rent? Well, because you're living on the street. (laughs) <laughs> that's one of the reasons. But, of course, also there's uh, there's a lot of biblical reasons there as well in terms of uh, the you can all throughout the Bible it talks about being a, a productive uh, worker, working hard, and uh, not just uh, being a layabout, which in some cases these people are. It says Seattle has been under siege by an exploding homeless population since at least 2015 when ex-Mayor Ed Murray declared a state of emergency over the crisis. The city has struggled to play catch-up and is now beset with shelters at capacity and illegal encampments such as the Space Needle Mansion. That's just that's just uh, terrible, I think, because, again, you'd want to go visit a place like that. The Space Needle's a really neat tourist attraction, and, you know, if you're there and you want to take your family, now you've got to go by the homeless encampment. I would just check it off my list in terms of I wouldn't go there just for my own safety. I don't know what they're doing there. Just to men- not to mention the the potential for disease and and panhandlers and uh, the whole thing just is uh, not good. Uh, so they're trying to solve the problem, but uh, haven't been able to. Uh, this uh, one person they were talking to recently moved to the new camp with others after the city forced the group out of a nearby park. So the city's kind of chasing these people. You know, get out of the park. Okay, well we'll go by the Space Needle then. Well, get out. Of- I don't know if they'll move them out of there. I assume they would, and then they're going to go somewhere else. Uh, this this uh, person said, we've got the doors, the couch, the table. We've got the living room here, which is a mess right now because we're still constructing. Uh, but we're putting up a uh, the vinyl to cover it up, make it more attractive. So they're really building this uh, homeless encampment up and putting up doors and have tables and all kinds of things. The recently constructed camp is located on a small patch of grass on 3rd Avenue and Broad Street, about a, about a half block from the Space Needle and surrounded by multi-million dollar high-rise condos. So those property values are pretty high out there. Uh, if you've been out there, you know that. And so some people are paying a lot to be in those areas. And then you have the homeless just set up their little encampment right right there. So obviously, uh, you know, people paying those prices 
would be pretty upset with, uh, well, anybody would, but especially in a, a very high-rent area. The recently constructed camp uh, is located there. It says it's a form of protest. So they're protesting. Uh, one of the homeless uh, people said, we're staking a claim. We're refusing to cower in our tents. So they're they're staking a claim. How how can they stake a claim? They're just going to go and plop a tent down and say we live here now? Uh, it doesn't work that way. That would be anarchy if society worked that way. Uh, and they might think it's fine now, but what happens when another group comes along and takes their tent? You know, where would it stop? Uh, this homeless individual said the sprawling abode is made of tents, wood pallets, chairs, umbrellas, tarps, and whatever else people can put together. And uh, so they're doing it to not be discreet, but to really make it uh, obvious to passersby. A city spokesperson told the uh, news out there that officials have inspected the site and will continue to monitor and evaluate it. So that's what the city's going to do, monitor and evaluate it. Uh, that's not putting the fear into anybody. Mental health teams are also working with Seattle officials to figure out if there's any way to convince the people living in the camp to go somewhere else. Is there any way we could convince them? Um, I think there probably is some pretty convincing ways to get people out of those areas. And again, if, you know, it's not good that people are on the street and hopefully they could get some help, but it doesn't seem like they want help. It doesn't seem like they want to get off the street and that they want to make a spectacle of it. And that's what they're doing. Spokesman Will Lemke added, the city has no immediate plans to remove the camp, but that may change in the future if there is a problem or safety concern. Stay tuned. Uh, my words there. And the, he, the spokesman said, it certainly is an eyesore, but I don't think they have a lot of options. Uh, so I guess they got to do what they got to do. <laughs> well, so anyway, that's what's happening there. And then, of course, in California, you know, they were talking about maybe moving a lot of the homeless to different areas and building these shelters. But it doesn't appear that they even want to be in shelters. They just want to apparently be on the street. And they want to be, uh, in this case, causing a spectacle down there by the Space Needle. So for people that have to go down there and uh, work downtown and so forth, that's uh, not a lot of fun to see that. And for tourists, uh, for tourists, that's not a good thing either. And I've actually thought about going back out there to see a few things at some point, and that kind of makes me think twice about it. But uh, anyway, that's the situation in Seattle. Here's a uh, interesting note about America. Would you be surprised that North Americans are the world's biggest TV addicts, watching the most TV of anybody in the world? See, they always try to tell you that TV is on its way out, but that's not the case. People are still uh, consuming a lot of it. Matter of fact, four hours a day of television. That can sneak up on you pretty quick. You know, if you put if you watch an hour, say, in the morning with news or something, you're getting going for the day, um, and then, you know, few things at night before you know it that can be four hours pretty easily the average person around the world spent nearly three hours a day in front of their television last year and so that's where the world standard is the world average america's north america is at four hours so an hour extra euro data tv worldwide said that television viewing was holding up despite more and more people watching online platforms like netflix and amazon so that is an interesting point to consider as well if people are spending between three and four hours a day on average watching TV, and they're also online, how much of the day is spent online uh, watching television, some sort of a you know screen interaction? Oh, that's a lot of time. That is a lot of time. That's amazing. 
Americans and Canadians are the biggest TV addicts, as it said, four hours and three minutes on average daily. You know, just think about what we could do at that time. Like if you just said, I'm just going to not watch TV, or I'll cut it in half. How about that? I'll cut it in half and I'll just read for two hours a day. How many books could you get through? That would be that would be uh, <laughs> a lot a lot more accomplished. And a lot of times people say, I just don't have enough time. And uh, that might be true, but but if it's uh, four hours is being spent watching television, that's a lot of that's a lot of time uh, being spent doing that. <clears throat> the length of time people watch television is holding up, despite the growing availability of online content. They said, and uh, there was a slight fall in TV viewing in North America and Asia, but it's still growing in South America and in Europe. It is maintaining historically high levels. Asians watch less TV than any other major markets spending two hours and 25 minutes in front of the box. In China, that drops to only two hours and 12 minutes. So that's interesting. I mean, there, if you look at that, uh, uh, people that are very successful in certain areas, it seems like uh, when it comes to math and sciences in particular, it seems like uh, some of those Asian nations are doing better than the U.S. is. Uh, any correlation between how much time is spent watching television and not? I don't know. be interesting to look at. Certainly, uh, it wouldn't uh, hurt the scores any, say, if the if the American students spent more time doing their work as opposed to watching television or something like that. So, And again, these are averages. You know, some people probably don't watch any, and some people probably watch a lot. But I think the average is a, it's a pretty good indication, obviously, of what is happening. Uh, millennials and young adults, you won't be surprised to know, are spending more time on their phones, often catching up with programs that way. So... What difference does it make, really, right? If you're watching it on TV, you're watching it on a smartphone, you're still watching content and uh, just doing it in different ways. In Sweden, one of the most digitally advanced countries in the world, young adults watch slightly less than two hours of TV a day, so they're they're involved in some other things. That's a lot of time, though. You know, even if it's two hours, it's still a lot of time. Might be something to evaluate. I know uh, uh, I've had a few days. Um, where I've just not watched any television, try to make a habit of not watching it too much. Um, and those are pretty good days. Those are those are more productive days. And uh, like a commenter said earlier about getting off of social media and not missing it, if I have a day without TV, I really don't miss it as long as I'm doing something else. So it's it's interesting. TV's like a it's like sort of a vortex. Uh, so is the internet where. Once you start, it's just hard to stop. It just drags on and on and on, and it seems like it, it really takes a toll. So anyway, that's uh, some data about television watching in North America. And uh, you think about getting to the end of your life, and uh, I think people usually want more time, most cases. They look back and say, I wish I had more time, or I wish I had done something else. And you start adding up all, like, say, the, just the, the television watching time, then uh, that really changes the perspective pretty quickly. Um, we could probably get a lot more done and uh, be much more effective if we uh, spend our time in a good good manner. So anyway, it's something to uh, consider and think about and uh, we're, see where the time goes. They always talk about having financial budgets, which is a great idea and, and very uh, necessary. And it's not a bad idea to have a time budget either to stop and just think about where does my time go? What am I doing with it? And uh, it is interesting to <clears throat> really write it down and find out. And sometimes um, it's not always uh, so great what we find, but it's good to look at it and consider what's happening with our time. One other quick note here uh, today, in just as far as the uh, news is considered concerned, this is from the Boston Herald, just a 
sign of the times that we're in. You might uh, you might uh, like marathon running. That's something that's uh, popular with some people. Very difficult to do. It takes a lot of discipline and strength and stamina. And a lot of people, uh, if they even they don't like to run, they like to watch it. It's a big event, kind of a uh, uh, you know an event where you can get a family or a group together, and people really seem to enjoy that. And the Boston Marathon is coming up. And, of course, as a sign of our times today, the marathon there okays trans runners. Organizers welcome people as they specify. So people sign up typically, you know, according to their gender. And uh, because if you want to win, <laughs> which a lot of people aren't running to win, obviously, but, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to do their best. But they divide it into categories. So the men are competing against the men and the women against the women in terms of time. And But now they're letting people s- register as whatever they want to be. So what you have happening here is the article points out there's a lot of men that are registering as women to run. And uh, they get into all their, their um, oh, thinking about changing their genders and so forth. But they're running and uh, trying to convince people that they don't have any advantage of doing that, that it's, it makes no difference. So anyway, that's that's what's happening there at uh, the Boston Marathon, and I imagine a few other marathons around the uh, around the world as well. So just a uh, bizarre, bizarre headline, but that's what's occurring. Uh, what next? You know, I think. Well, why not? Why stop there? You know, why not just have the animals run too? Right? We could you could race the cheetahs and see who wins. <laughs> I have a pretty good idea who would win, uh, but you know, if you can specify and say, well, this is what I am. Well, you know. Where does it stop? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but really, I mean, getting into that thinking, where does it stop? Why couldn't a why couldn't a cheetah say, well, you know, I I think that cheetah identifies as a human, so let it run with the humans. The cheetahs are going to win the race, but that's what's happening out there in uh, Boston. I imagine other marathons as well. You're listening to Trumpet Radio live here on 101.3 KPCG and online. We're at kpcg.fm. We have a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you're welcome to do that at KPCGFM. And if you'd like to email us any uh, comments or questions or anything, story ideas, you can send those to comments at kpcg.fm. We're happy to take a look at those for you. Uh, This is Trumpet Radio Live. I'm Dwight Falk uh, with you here today. Grant Turgeon should be back in tomorrow. And uh, so we'll uh, have a full-on show for you on uh, Tuesday. Make sure you do listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show coming up here in just a bit on KPCG. Lots of great programming here on this Monday, including a new Just the Best Literature, the Trumpet Daily Radio Show, and uh, just quite a few other programs as well. Those are some of the new ones today. Uh, The Trumpet Daily Radio Show talks about a few topics, including some of what's going on over there, not too far from where they're located, and uh, London's having problems. We talked about this last week. London... Uh, their crime rate is really pretty high, their murder rate, and uh, they're having knife attack problems. So now they want to ban the knives. That's something that uh, comes up here in the U.S. when the gun debate is talked about. People will say, oh, what next? You know, you're going to ban the knives? Yes, as a matter of fact, that's what they're doing. But, of course, people that want to cause trouble are going to do it uh, one way or the other. This is from the Daily Wire. It says, London's mayor declares intense new knife control policies to stop epidemic of stabbings. An epidemic of stabbings and acid attacks in London has gotten so bad that London Mayor Sadiq Khan is announcing broad new knife control, 
policies designed to keep these weapons of war out of the hands of Londoners looking to cause others harm. So now the knives are being banned. The tough, immediate measures involve an incredible police crackdown, they say, a ban on home deliveries of knives so you can't, and acid, so you can't order uh, knives or acid. I don't know why people would want acid, but maybe there might be a reason, a legitimate reason. Anyway, you can't get it now, apparently. And expanding law enforcement stop and search powers so that police may stop anyone they believe to be a threat or planning a knife or acid attack. So it was interesting. I, th- I was reading this and I thought, well, um, who's perpetrating these attacks? And it's hard to find that information out. There's They don't uh, give you a lot of information about who exactly is perpetrating these attacks. You know, they talk about uh, not wanting to. Well, the Trump Daily Radio show, they were talking about how this particular mayor of London, he he doesn't like the stop and, and check policies. And but now apparently they're, they're going to have to ramp it up a little bit, the stop and search. But but I mean, if you if you look around at a crowd and you, you look at everybody and you think, OK, who here might attack somebody with a knife or with acid? I think you'd have a pretty good guess as to who it would be. I mean, even even uh, just you could do it by age for the most part. I don't think you're going to have an elderly person attack somebody with acid. It could happen. But that's not happening usually. It's the younger people, and then you can break it down even further, and it does start to become uh, even race-based in some ways. I mean, there are some people that are, or some groups that are more prone uh, or more willing to attack others. And it's this is not a situation of, they say, Londoners attacking each other. Well, there's a lot of people in London, though, and who's attacking who and how is this working? So it's it's interesting to look at that. There's a write-up here that relates to this. It says, The Acid Attacks of London's Muslim No-Go Zone. It's by Daniel Greenfield. And he says, uh, Things are going smashingly well in London, Stan. And, of course, he's being sarcastic there. There's a lot of problems. He said, The, the city of London has the highest murder rate in the land, while the authorities launch investigations into uh, pork being left at a mosque or a hijab supposedly being torn off. Crime continues to rise. And so his point is that, okay, they're they're very careful. They don't want to offend any race or any group of people or any religion. Uh, well, in particular, they don't want to offend the Muslim religion. And they're, so they're really looking at some of those things. But the crime is just exploding. It says gun control has worked so wonderfully well that gun crime in London rose 42%. So ban the guns. No more gun crime, right? Now it rose 42%. It says, when gun control advocates insist that we should be more like the UK, over here in, in the US, London's 2,544 gun crime offenses probably aren't what they had in mind. You know, you can ban guns, you can ban knives, you can ban all these things, but how about banning crime? <laughs> That's something that they're not, they're not been able to do. He says, but gun control does work in London after a fashion. Those gang members who can't lay their hand on a firearm must make do with a sharp blade. So, knife crime in London rose 24% to 12,074 recorded offenses. 60 people were stabbed to death last year. So, in some cases, gangs can't get guns. So, they go and get knives. I mean, how hard hard is it to, to pick out a gang? It doesn't seem like it's that hard to figure out who the gang is. You know, if, you, if you're just walking about minding your normal business, you could pick out probably where the gang is and where they're not. 
You know, you don't see a group of old retired ladies forming a gang. I've never seen one anyway. <laughs> it's it's the young men in particular, and then usually they uh, they kind of conduct themselves in a certain fashion where you know where the where there's going to be trouble. But uh, so the knives knife attacks have been up in London, and uh, there's uh, other reasons or there's other things happening now as well. Once they started to take away the knives, or they're trying to take away the knives, then what did people do? Well, let's throw acid at other people. So you have an acid attack problem. All sorts of issues where they try to get rid of one thing, but then something else comes up. He says, it's working well enough, these uh, taking away some of the weapons. They, the gangs responsible for the violence are turning to acid. Acid attacks in London rose from 162 in 2012 to 454 last year. There have already been 199 acid attacks this year. Five acid attacks just happened in London in the space of a little more than an hour. It's a terrifying, terrifying situation. And people come up and they throw acid in, on somebody else's face. And you know what that looks like because you see people after, if they survive it, and their faces are horribly disfigured for the rest of their lives. And in a lot of the cases, they give some examples. One fellow was just riding his motorbike down the road and he stopped at an intersection and this group rode up next to him and threw acid in his face and stole his motorbike. And he's floundering on the ground, begging for help, and of course nobody knows what's going on, so people don't help. And at that point, there's not a whole lot they could do anyway, I suppose, except wash it off, and, and he has to live with the results. But he was just minding his own business. And and the gangs admit that, hey, this is actually pretty effective because it's very scary. People don't know when we're going to do it, and they they don't know uh you know if if they'd be uh, targeted for a specific reason or if it would just be random i mean if you're walking through the city of london where this is prevalent now and and by the way you know where did it start where do you see these attacks occur well it's in the middle east and so you see these sorts of attacks if you're walking through london and you're face to face passing thousands of people depending on how busy it is that would be pretty unnerving to know that somebody could randomly just throw acid at you. That's what people are thinking about, and people are really concerned. Even some politicians over there are very, very concerned for their own safety. They're terrified because they, they know they could be a target, and sometimes it's random, sometimes it's for theft, sometimes it's political, sometimes uh, it's for intimidation, but it can happen uh, to many, many people. 454 attacks just last year. They say the push is on to license corrosive substances while banning anyone from carrying drain cleaner unless they have a good reason. When the public is banned from buying drain cleaners, then finally everyone in London will be safe. And the person is being pretty snarky, but I, you know, I think to good effect. He said it's worked for guns and knives, bound to work for acid, and being stuck with a clogged toilet like car rammings is the price we must pay for diversity. So he's he's this, this author's um, <laughs> again being pretty sarcastic about some of it, but he he is making I think a good point. Just that they're banning all of these uh, these uh, first guns, then knives, then acid, then you know, and drain cleaners and all these things, and then you have car rammings. No matter what they try to ban, people are not getting along with each other, and yet they're trying to push the diversity, which diversity is not a bad thing. But when people don't want to get along with each other and they want to attack each other, then it's a horrible thing, obviously. 
The author says it's easy to blame and ban inanimate objects, and it avoids any discussion of the perpetrators. That is a tremendous point. It is hard to find information on who's actually perpetrating the the events. I mean, just even think about it logically. Say you were in charge of a police force, and you heard about different attacks. I wouldn't be all that interested in the policy on knives or acid. I'd be interested in who's doing it. Who's doing it? It's no different than, say, if somebody was going around throwing rocks at people. I'm not interested in where they're getting their rocks from. I'm interested because there's rocks everywhere. I'm interested in who's doing it. Because if you stop who's doing it, the rocks aren't going to throw themselves. Acid's been around for a long time. It doesn't throw itself at people. People are doing these things. And they're trying to ban the inanimate objects and not deal with the people. So what do the people do? They just move on to another inanimate object and use it for their their crime spree. It says, uh, the author says, Newham, uh, Newham is the London borough with the highest number of acid attacks. It also has the second highest percentage of Muslims in the UK. 398 acid attacks incurred in five years in the area named, quote, the most ethnically diverse district in England and Wales. 33% of Newham consists of non-UK passport holders. And like the author says, is that just a coincidence? I mean, it might be uncomfortable. People don't like to think about that. It doesn't It doesn't uh, jive with the current thinking on uh, uh, multiculturalism. But those are the numbers. And again, where do you see, at, whoever thought of acid attacks? I don't remember that ever happening. I remember it happening in the Middle East. It happened in Russia a few times that made the news. And then lo and behold, it's starting to happen in the U.K., and and so get rid of the knives or get rid of the guns, get rid of the knives, and here comes the acid. And then who knows what else. And they say expect, uh, except rather, that the, the place with the third highest number of acid attacks is Tower Hamlets. Tower Hamlets is a Muslim no-go zone. It has one of the smallest native British populations in the country. 35% of the population is Muslim. Most of those are Bangladesh from Bangladesh with a healthy sprinkling of uh, Somalians in there as well. There were 84 acid attacks in what has been dubbed the Islamic Republic of Tower Hamlets. 84 acid attacks occurring over there. And so as the author goes on to point out, look, it's not coincidence. You can look and see where these things are occurring, and you know that it's because of some of these uh, gangs and some of these other situations where it's they're trying to push everyone together and make it a multicultural paradise as they would see it, and yet you're seeing crime explode. So in response to that, guns are banned, knife attacks explode. So in response to that, you get rid of the knife attacks as much as possible. Then it comes the acid, and then, of course, there's the car rammings. In Germany, that happened over the weekend, right? Uh, didn't see all the details on it. I'm not sure who was all involved, but, again, that attack occurred there in Germany over the weekend. So people are really, uh, some are on edge about this and getting just tired of the political correctness when you know very obviously where these attacks are coming from, and yet... They're not doing anything really to stop it. So there's a lot more in this write-up about what's happening over there uh, in the U.K., and it's touched on somewhat on the Trumpet Daily Radio show today, just that they're trying to get rid of the knives, get rid of the knives, and yet acid attacks, car attacks, you'd have to get rid of everything. You'd have to get rid of fists and arms and legs <laughs> because the people are the ones that are perpetrating these horrible situations. It's interesting to think about, obviously because of just the U.K. and their own safety over there, 
but then also to relate it to the U.S. gun control debate over here because they're they're a little further ahead uh, than we are in terms of they don't have the guns to the level that we do here in the U.S., but crime has not stopped. It's just coming in more uh, horrifying ways. And really the thing, too, there is that, the again, the people that are following the laws, they don't have they don't have any way to defend themselves. They don't have guns. They don't have knives. There's no way to defend yourself from an acid attack unless you walk around in a acid-proof full-body suit all day. And maybe it'll come to that. I wouldn't be surprised to see people sell something like that just to protect themselves. Terrible situation uh, over there in the U.K., but again, that's uh, some of what's happening. It's talked about a little bit on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today, so make sure you check that out and a lot of other topics covered as well. That's all the time we have for today here on uh, Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. Make sure you do listen for the uh, Kia David program that's coming up in just a bit and the Trumpet Daily Radio Show as well, along with a new Just the Best literature. All that's on the way here on uh, Trumpet Radio 101.3 KPCG. Listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.